Hello, welcome to the Eagle Tales podcast, a podcast from the Central High School Foundation, keeping you connected to the nest through storytelling and original interviews. I'm your host, Josh Busey. Before we get started, though, a little bit about the foundation. We were established in 1996 to support present and future Central students. And today we are even more committed to preserving the values of a Central High School education. The foundation supports the school through many activities, like building relationships with alumni, fundraising, student scholarships, teacher classroom grants, and a lot more. We want to work with you. We are proud of the accomplishments that our students, staff, and 35,000 alumni achieve every day. Your patronage not only supports Central, but it also strengthens Eagle Nation. Visit our website to learn more, chsfomaha.org. It is my pleasure and honor to introduce our guest for Episode 8 of Eagle Tales, Natalie E. Brown, who is a 1985 alumna of Central and a 2017 Hall of Fame honoree, will be joining me shortly. During a globe-trotting three-decade career as a U.S. State Department diplomat, Brown has served her country while promoting peace, security, and stronger ties with the rest of the world. At Central, Brown studied both French and German before graduating from Georgetown University and then passing the Foreign Service exam. Her winding State Department career has taken her to numerous international postings, primarily in Africa and the Middle East. Assignments include Deputy Chief of Mission of the U.S. Mission to the United Nations Agencies in Rome, Deputy Chief of Mission of the U.S. Embassy in Tunisia, Economic Counselor in Jordan, Political Chief in Kuwait, and Service in Ethiopia and Guinea. U.S. postings included serving as Senior Watch Officer in the State Department Operations Center during 9-11 attacks. Her career reached a new climax in 2016 when she took over as Chief Diplomat of the U.S. Mission in the African nation of Eritrea. Since October 2020, she has served as the U.S. Ambassador to Uganda. Natalie, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for the invitation to join you. I'm really happy to be with you and all the Eagles listening in. Hi, everyone. I always like to start out our show by allowing our guests the opportunity to introduce herself to our listeners. So, Natalie, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Natalie Brown. I was born and raised in Omaha, grew up in the Vincent area, went to Fontenelle for elementary school, Monroe for seventh and eighth grades. And then I went to uh, King. When I attended, it was a ninth grade center. I, I still would like to understand from <laughs> Omaha Public Schools, like why they put all the ninth graders together in one school. Like that's, you know, quite an age group to have everyone there. And then of course I went to Central. And I think one of the reasons I went to Central was not just because of the academic reputation that it had then and still has now, but we're a family of Central High graduates. I was just talking to my aunt this morning and counted, and I think we came up with over a dozen family members who all wow. went to Central. Wow. You know, starting back to my aunt's mother, who was a graduate in 1935, if you can imagine that. An uncle, my father, graduated in 1948. My aunt, Josh, whom I think you know, Pat Brown, who <laughs> is uh, on the Alumni Association Absolutely. and very active in all things Central. But I have, you know, three cousins who went to Central. My cinch, well, actually, 
you know, three cousins from my generation who went to Central. My sister's a Central graduate as well. And then um, my cousin's children actually graduated from Central as well. So I, I don't think I ever considered uh, attending another high school. I just wanted to be an Eagle and wear that purple and white jacket. That's always one of my favorite parts is hearing about the generations of families that have gone through Central. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. As a 1985 graduate of Central, what do you remember about your time as a Central Eagle? Oh, good question. What do I remember? I remember the 80s. I remember 80s hair <laughs> and 80s music. Um, Absolutely. I, I can't remember if it was homecoming or prom where the theme was Purple Rain because, you know, Prince and that, you know, movie and that song were very popular at that time. But you know, so often when I think about my time at Central, it just all comes back to the courtyard, which, you know, still is a gathering place. Going there before school and just for a few minutes, because I am not <laughs> a morning person. Uh, even in high school, I was not a morning person. So there was not a lot of time to hang out during, in the courtyard during and um, before school. But certainly, um, I think I ate lunch in the, my, you know, brought my lunch and ate it in the courtyard, I think, almost every day of high school and after school and you know, cut through the courtyard to you to get to classes on the other side of the building. The courtyard was covered when you were there. Is that correct? It was covered. Yes. So um, the last time I was in the courtyard, about a year or so ago, there were more tables there. I just remember mostly sitting on the floor or on the steps. Yeah. I remember lots of homework, uh, not enough time in between classes. I, when I think about the passing time in the classes and getting around, I wonder how we did it. How did you, you know, talk to your friends, stop by your locker, change your books, maybe run to the bathroom? I, it seems impossible these days, but. I don't think you've been back in the school since then. We do have the new arts and library edition. And uh, a lot of the alumni that come through for reunion tours always mention how are students able to get from the new arts and library edition to, you know, somewhere else in the building. And they try their best to kind of schedule classes so you stay somewhat in the general area of the school so you're not running all the way across to try to make it during your passing period. But I could definitely understand how that would be uh, intimidating as a freshman coming in. What were some of your favorite teachers or uh, were there any faculty members that you felt like had an impact on your growth? Oh, oh, so many. And listening to other podcasts, I've heard Mrs. Bernstein's name come up before, um, had her for English and, you know, remember her class vividly, remember that uh, she was very focused, that she had high expectations for her students, that, um, you know, incredibly poised. It was a tough class. She was a strict teacher, but I learned so much in that class, particularly about writing. And my job entails writing every single day. And I think everything I know about writing and how to convey a message uh, on paper is something that I learned in, at Central. Uh, I took foreign languages while I was there. So Mrs. Bayer, Mrs. Schutte, Gretchen Schutte, the French and German teachers respectively. I took orchestra and I was a member of the Pitt Orchestra. So shout out to Mr. Farrell. And, uh, you know, Mrs. Ottenreith, uh, I, I still, you know, and then please don't ask me to do it. I think I can still quote, however, the uh, the introduction to the Canterbury Tales, because <laughs> I can remember um, she would give us passages from literature. And if you could repeat them, that would, you know, give you an extra um, quiz 
grade in the uh, well, crit score in the t- in the grade book, and her quizzes were a little bit tough. So um, if there was an opportunity to boost my grade, I was going to learn those passages. So. So you graduated from Central in 1985, and then you moved to D.C., is that right? Uh, I did. How was that experience going to Georgetown? That was quite the move, going from Nebraska to Washington, D.C. But, you know, Georgetown was great. You know, it was the the exposure to foreign languages and thinking globally that I got from Central that, you know, when I you know, had an opportunity to go to Georgetown and be in the nation's capital. It was, I mean, Central prepared me for that. And there were a couple of other Central grads who were ahead of me at Georgetown. So knowing that people had done it before certainly made it a little bit easier. Again, going back to Central's reputation for academics, I mean, I tested out of some of the English courses and was able to take some advanced language courses at Georgetown because of the strong foundation I received at Central. Um, So that was great. So that background, I actually finished school a semester early, and and, and it's all because of the um, the great teachers and the exceptional foundation that I received at Central. But it's also interesting being at Georgetown um, at my time, and I mean in Georgetown, like so many universities now, is trying to be more uh, inclusive and reach out and have a much more diverse student body. But it's kind of uh, interesting to go into an environment where so many students had come from prep schools or private schools, and here I was as public school kid. Um, so we kind of had some different experiences there, but a little bit of culture shock, but it was good. Yeah, that's actually an interesting point. If you can remember, going into Georgetown, how many languages did you know how to speak, and then how many languages do you know how to speak now? So I studied French and German while I was at Central, and at Georgetown, I continued to study French and German. And then during my career at the State Department, I've had a few assignments that we call language designated, where I um, studied a language uh, for them. So before going to Ethiopia, I spent six months um, studying Amharic. It was just me and... uh, Ato means Mr. Atomulu, my Amharic teacher, the two of us every day for six hours in a classroom, uh, learning the language for that assignment. And I spent two years studying Arabic before my service in Kuwait. So I spent one year in Washington at what we have a foreign service institute where we teach, I think, like 80 different languages and other um, professional skills to um, State Department personnel and other and employees from other foreign affairs agencies, and then another year in Tunisia, intensive language training there. And then um, at other posts, I've taken some classes when I've had a chance. I spent some, you know, studied a little Italian when I was in Italy. At my last assignment, um, I tried to learn a little Tigrinya, but, um, you know, anyone who's thinking about studying a foreign language, you know, start it early, make it consistent. I've found um, with each passing year, it gets harder and harder to pick up a new language. You were the first State Department participant in the International Women's Forum Leadership Foundation Fellows Program. Maybe talk to us a little bit about what that program and experience was like. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that program. It was an incredible opportunity, and every day I'm so thankful for it. Um, So the International Women's Forum uh, is an organization of women from, you know, across industry. 
to promote, you know, women's involvement in culture and the economy and politics across the board. And their leadership foundation has a program where every year they take a group of women um, that they think have potential for leadership and, you know, bring them together for some mentoring and some training. And the State Department um, decided to participate in this. And I was the first uh, State Department employee selected for it. And it was an incredible experience um, to come together throughout the course of a year with other women. And the women in the groups, they have since become some of my best friends in the world. It's great to be with a group of people who are only interested in your success. There's no competition. They just want the best for you. And they're very honest about it. They will tell you when you're veering off track or other things that you need to do. So they're still kind of my go-to group. If I'm dealing with a challenge or want to talk something through, I will reach out to some of the women from that group. And being here in Uganda is such a privilege because one of my um, fellow fellows uh, is Ugandan and she lives here. So it's nice to be able to get together with her periodically. And, and it's amazing that... You know, we did this, I think it was 2007, 2008, and still when we get together, we still talk about that experience and how it um, inspired us and how it affected our lives. My next question is kind of complicated, but I'm sure a lot of our listeners are curious to know, how does someone even become an ambassador? Uh, So I think, you know, when a lot of people think about diplomats, um, their first thought is the ambassador, because that's the position that, you know, you read about in literature, that's a person that you see in movies. But the State Department, we have a total of, you know, just over 75,000 employees, 50,000 of those are our local staff. We rely on them intensively to do whatever it is. Um, We're trying to advance in the countries in which we assign. We have civil service employees close to, you know, a little over 11,000. And those are the people who work mostly at State Department headquarters in Washington. They're kind of, you know, very often subject matter experts on some things. And then you have the Foreign Service, which is about 13,000 employees divided among, we call ourselves generalists. Um, Those are people who do political work, economic work public affairs, uh, consular work, you know, consular officers assist American citizens overseas. And they're also the ones who adjudicate the visa applications of people who want to visit the United States. They public diplomacy and management officers who kind of keep things running. Uh, And then we have specialists, which includes, you know, IT folks and doctors and psychiatrists and human resource experts and budget analysts and, um, you know, other skill codes. So that's kind of just the overall framework of the State Department and its staff. Those of us who have the the good fortune, the privilege, the honor of rising to the rank of ambassador, you know, we come from uh, the senior foreign service, usually, you know, at least 25 years of service. My personal rank, I'm like the equivalent of a two-star general. And to achieve this, you know, it's the culmination of what you've done over the course of your career, developing, um, you know, proficiency and expertise when it comes to, you know, politics and economic issues, uh, being able to advance U.S. interests and talk about those, to talk about, you know, U.S. trade and commercial uh, interests. And traditionally... Um, for most administrations in terms of the ambassador, those that the um, serving as ambassadors, 
Um, it's been, you know, generally 70% career, meaning you come up either through the State Department or one of the other foreign affairs agencies, and those include the U.S. Agency for International Development, um, the Foreign Commercial Service, and the Foreign Agricultural Service, um, and about 30%, you know, non-career, what people say are political appointees. And those are the ones I think that get a lot of attention in the media because either they perhaps have donated to a political campaign or perhaps they're close to the president. You know, as a career diplomat, I would love to see, you know, more of my colleagues in these senior positions because I think, um, you know, there are some expertise that you develop over the course of your career um, taking different assignments, working on various issues. But when I was in Rome, I had the pleasure of serving with a non-career ambassador. Um, and when I was in Rome, the focus was on like food security and hunger issues. And it was very interesting for me to work with someone like that was what he had done. Um, he had spent most of his career working on these issues related to hunger and poverty and getting more food to more people in a cost-effective way. So it, it was, I think we worked well together because he coming from, he had worked in government as well, but he had worked, you know, spent half his career in private sector, half in government. So he had a very different approach to some of these issues versus, you know, perhaps I'm, you know, at times maybe a little bit too bureaucratic because I've spent my career working for government. But I think, you know, we have people come in with various talents and background and expertise and, and it's nice when it can come together uh, and work in a collaborative spirit to advance U.S. interests, you know, whether they're political or economic interests, but also U.S. values. What would you say was your biggest or first big break in your career? Like, what was the thing that kind of jump-started your entire career, would you say? That's a good question, because some of these things, you know, our careers, you know, as diplomats, were assigned to countries then. You can't control what happens. I think about when I was assigned to Kuwait before I actually went, you know, some of the people said, oh, it's a you know, fairly quiet country, strong relations with the United States, great shopping malls, great movies, you know, life is really comfortable there. And then September 11th happened and we had a massive military presence there and, you know, operations ongoing in Iraq just to the north of Kuwait's border. And that completely changed the assignment I had and kind of the expectations I had for that for that job. And similarly, when I uh, served in Tunisia as the deputy chief of mission there, I often feel like I served in three different Tunisias. When I arrived, there was still a dictator. It was a very difficult environment to to work in and to develop relations with people because they were hesitant to get too close to Americans. And then the Arab Spring started there and everything opened up and it was a completely different country. Uh, and then unfortunately there was a terror attack on the embassy and we evacuated um, a lot of our staff and our family members. And so it changed again. So as I don't know if, you know, you can say per se that there's a big break, but it's just if there are these opportunities that present themselves and how you respond to them. But I think one thing or that happened early on in my career that really, I think, kind of changed what I wanted from a foreign service career um, was I think it was about five or six years in working as a desk officer and a desk officer is kind of the primary point of contact um, between the United States and another country you know, for 
you know, the embassy overseas, like the desk officers or point of entry into the State Department for a foreign embassy in Washington, the desk officer is like that person's, uh, that embassy is kind of go-to person to manage the, the issues between the two countries. I was working as a desk officer and there is an ambassador in our office who needed someone to work on a special project. Um, maybe he saw something special in me and asked me to work on it with him. Maybe he just needed another set of hands to work with him. But being able to work closely with him to go to some high level meetings to see like how policy was developed and implemented um, I thought, oh, I want to do more of this because up until that time, I thought, you know, I just kind of want to travel the world and learn languages and kind of enjoy being abroad. And at that point, I thought, no, I really want to be more involved in policy and, and deal with some of these um, more impactful issues that, that affect all of us. So thank you, uh, Ambassador Marshall McCauley. And I did write him a letter recently to thank him for that entree and to let him know that I, too, had become an ambassador. I think you might have touched on this already earlier, but what would you say is your favorite part about your job? What do you enjoy doing most? Well, I enjoy the opportunity to learn new things. As I said, I feel like I think I learn something new every day, and 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 that's incredible. I think um, I'm a lifelong learner, and I think that's something that Central also nurtured that curiosity. So, so it's been great to to learn new things and to try new things, but. Uh, I think the thing that I enjoy most and inspires me the most is is the privilege, the honor of representing the American people, not just, you know, as ambassador, I am the president's personal representative, but I feel like uh, my colleagues and I represent the American people in the United States. I have a colleague who says she thinks of diplomatics as sample Americans, not model Americans, but she says sample Americans. And that resonates with me. And I've been in a lot of countries where people perhaps don't travel or Americans don't visit a lot. And so I may be the only American someone in that country ever meets. And I want to make sure that I give them the best possible example uh, of the United States and Americans that I can. So uh, I take that very seriously and I really enjoy that. You know, and I think um, going back to um, when I was in Tunisia and this was after September 11th, very tense period. Um, it was during Ramadan, which is the month when um, Muslims fast from sunup to sundown. And countries that I've been in where people observe Ramadan is it gets close to sunset. You know, there's a lot of traffic and then it dies down because everyone is rushing home to be with family members to break the fast. And I had taken a friend home and I was driving to my home and I saw something in my rear view mirror and I thought, like, did I, did something fall? Did I hit something? What's going on? Is there an emergency? Uh, and I did everything the security officers say you're not supposed to do. I, I stopped my car, pulled over to see what was going on. And a man came running up to my car and was just begging for help and speaking so quickly and in a local dialect that I didn't fully understand it. And then a woman came over to help translate the problem was that he was trying to get his mother home and there was an older woman sitting on the curb, very elderly, walking with a cane. And because it was so close to sunset and everyone was home, like they couldn't find a taxi and he, they were just begging, could I take them home? And again, that's not what you're supposed to do. You shouldn't give a right to strangers. You know, don't do this. Um, but I did because I'm, I'm pretty tall. 
like six feet. And my dad was a boxer uh, before he became a police officer. I figured I can take care of myself. They were, you know, fairly slight. And after the five, 10, 15 minutes, whatever it was to understand the SAG, I felt like we'd spent so much time together that I kind of had an obligation to help them. So they all piled in my car because the woman who was translating said, well, if you're giving them a ride, can you give me one too? It's like, sure. And I was, as I was driving them to where they wanted to go, you know, the guy was questioning me, like, where are you from? Why don't you speak better Arabic? What's your name? You know, and all sorts of questions about my background and what I was doing there. And then when I finally dropped him off, he looked at me and he said, thank you. You know, I didn't know Americans could be nice, which was just shocking to me. But, you know, everything he knew about the United States was you know, from TV and one particular news channel at that time. Uh, and I changed his view. And I am sure that he sat down with his family around dinner and talked about this and said, hey, I met this American and she gave us a ride and like she was nice. And um, so I often think about that. So if I can influence the way, you know, one person thinks about our country and our citizens and how we approach each other, then I've done my job. I mentioned in the intro that you are a Central High School Hall of Fame inductee and you have been able to come back to Omaha. How often would you say that you get to come back to see your friends and family? So my mom still lives in Omaha in the same house that I grew up in. Uh, So I try to get home at least once a year. Uh, Sometimes that doesn't happen, certainly um, for the three and a half years that I lived in Rome. Uh, my mother came frequently there, and we tried kind of traveled around the country a little bit, so I didn't come home as frequently. But otherwise, I usually try at least once a year, and I was just uh, home in October for a couple of weeks and had enjoyed popcorn, went to Ted and Wally's. My great niece and nephew were visiting, so we went to the pumpkin patch, did all the, you know, the normal fall things. Hitting up all the the regular hot spots in Omaha. I like that. Regular hot spots. And of course, you know, got together with some friends from Central as well, because um, that's the other thing. It's really nice to still be in touch with several friends from from Central. I know there are some things that you can't share with us because of privacy or security concerns. But if you could say, what would a typical day look like for you when you go to work? Oh, I say that there's no typical day, but I can kind of run down some of the things that I've done over the past week. So, you know, of course, COVID remains a threat here like it does, like it is in the United States. And so, like so many other people, we're still trying to minimize the amount of time we actually spend in the embassy for, you know, some people have jobs where they have to go in. So for those of us who can work remotely, um, we try to to make it safer for um, the people who who don't have a choice and have to go into the mission. Uh, and, and to address that, one of the things the United States has done is we've donated vaccines to Uganda um, to date. It's just a little over 9.4 million and trying to make um, to help as many people get vaccinated as possible. But most days start off with we call it like a senior staff meeting. Here at the mission in Uganda, we have several U.S. government agencies. It's not just State Department. We have uh, representatives from the Department of Defense, from the U.S. Agency for International Development, Treasury, from the Centers for Disease um, Control, the National Institutes of Health, and, and several others. And apologies to any of my colleagues for 
listening if I omitted your agencies. Uh, but we get together just to kind of talk about like, you know, if there's anything um, that's happened in Washington or in the United States that we need to be aware of that's going to affect our work, like what's happening here in Uganda um, that we need to follow up on. Uh, are there any um, public events coming up or any meetings just to make sure that we're all in sync with what our priorities are. And then for the past week, I had a meeting with the foreign minister, um, the equivalent of the secretary of state to talk about some you know, bilateral issues. Uh, one of the things I did was um, deliver a demarche. A demarche is a formal request from one country to another. And there was an issue that um, is very important to the United States. And we were requesting the government of Uganda to take a specific action. So I had a conversation with the foreign minister about that. We talked about COVID. We talked about um, regional security and some other issues. So that's my job to meet with um, government officials as as often as possible, and the foreign minister certainly am. So when I'd like to see on a regular basis, I had a meeting with some other diplomats. Um, there's a group we call ourselves the Troika, uh, the United States, the United Kingdom, and Norway where we, our governments cooperate closely on a regional security issue. So with my counterparts, the Norwegian ambassador and the UK high commissioner, we got together to talk about an upcoming conference and to make sure that um, we were in aligned and how we were going to manage this. There's another grouping of about 21 embassies and UN organizations, the Partners in Democracy and Governance, that provide development assistance to Uganda, and we meet on a regular basis to to talk about what we're doing individually, how do we support each other, any opportunities that are being missed, any challenges that we have. One of the things through the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC does, is um, training for public health fellows. So it's, um, a group of 13 Ugandans in public health just completed a two-year fellowship and I went to their graduation ceremony and they made presentations on some of the work that they've done with uh, related to COVID, HIV, AIDS, uh, malaria, you know, other public health issues. So saw that, presented their uh, graduation certificates, took a lot of pictures, had lunch with them, you know, talked about other gaps in public health and how we can work together to address those. You know, of course, um, legislators and politicians in Washington are interested in what's happening here. So my colleagues and I had a conference call with some staffers from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to kind of update them on developments and what we're doing and some of our needs. So I think those are just, those are some of the high points of, of last week. And and now that I recount it, it's like, no wonder I'm a little tired. That was a lot. And then of course, you know, we are bureaucracy, there's just kind of internal things we're getting to our evaluation season. So meeting with colleagues, uh, talking about their work assignments, counseling sessions, what uh, we want to include in the evaluation and things like that. And in here, I thought I had a busy schedule. That sounds like quite the schedule that you have to deal with. I'm not sure how you're able to handle all of that. That's very impressive. <laughs> Well, I'm fortunate that I've got a fantastic team and they do a lot of the uh, the prep work and set these things up to me. So I just have to show up and deliver on a lot of these things. If you had to say, who are some role models that you look up to? Oh, well, you know, somebody say it's trite. I have to um, recognize my parents. 
uh, first and foremost. Um, as I said, my father was a Central High grad, um, was a boxer before he joined the police force, and he was an Omaha police officer for, I think, 27 or 28 years. And my mother uh, was an occupational health and safety nurse at Western Electric, which became AT&T Technologies. And now the last time I was out in that area, there were restaurants and shopping there. Um, but for both me and my sister, my parents stressed the importance of education, and they also in, encouraged us to be adventurous and to try things. They, There was never anything they said, you can't do that. Um, they found a way to make it happen. And, you know, I first, you know, my interest in the world started at a very young age. I remember with my mother not reading, you know, like children's books or nursery rhymes, but looking at uh, National Geographic's Children's Atlas and just being curious about the world. And my mother, who um, grew up on the East Coast, she's from Delaware and went to school in New York. Uh, one year, I think when I was about 10, we went to New York for a family vacation. And that trip included a stop by the United Nations building. And I just remember thinking, like, how do you how do you get here? How do you do this? Um, you know, and from that experience, we hosted foreign exchange students. Both my sister and I went to Belgium as exchange students. So whatever we were interested in something, my parents, you know, um, found the resources. I don't know how to, to, to give us as much exposure and to, to nurture that interest and to encourage us. So, so I thank them for that investment and, uh, and that confidence in us. Uh, but I also think, um, you know, people I look up to, certainly with my profession, uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who is our current uh, ambassador at the United Nations. Yeah, she's a colleague and mentor and someone who, you know, has always made herself available um, to generations of diplomats to provide, you know, a, a shoulder advice if you needed it, but also professional advice and sometimes, you know, a little clarity if you're going off the wrong way. And, and, you know, one of the things I admire most about her is uh, she is an exceptional diplomat, um, I think does an amazing job in representing the United States, but she's also stays very true to herself and, and to her roots and has brought that um, to her work. Uh, Maura Hardy is another ambassador and was the Assistant Secretary of State for Consular Affairs. Um, she's someone, again, that uh, epitomizes, you know, excellence and making sure that you care for your teams. And, you know, the lessons I learned from her is, you know, just taking that time to to invest in your staff. When I worked on her staff, um, whenever we were getting ready to rotate to another assignment, um, she gave us a thank you note and with kind words about what she observed from our time working together. So, um, you know, that's something I strive to do, sometimes not always successful, but to make sure that people know that I've noticed what they do and to acknowledge that. So I, th I think those are some of the people that, um, you know, I think about, you know, on a probably daily basis and ask myself, like, what would they do if they were in this situation? Finally, we always like to end with my favorite question. And Natalie, what is your favorite central memory? Can I have two? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so two things that just um, were just so meaningful to me as a student. One was um, pit orchestra. I loved being in pit orchestra and the fall musical or road show. And, 
you know, it's kind of crazy to think that, you know, school finishes and then you still stay at school, you know, not getting home until eight o'clock at night because you're doing something creative. And I, you know, I still know the music, you know, can think of the musicals and hear the songs that we, we did when I played in the pit orchestra. And this is going back to uh, Mr. Farrell. I, I know the very first year that I was in pit orchestra, I think I played violin at that time. And then the next year, you know, I wanted to do something different. So I played bass and, and, you know, it was great that again, someone who said, Oh, you want to try this? And he helped me to do that. So I, I loved that, but, you know, perhaps one of my favorite memories, um, always a huge fan of Purple Feather Day. Yeah, I admit, like I was, I was a good student in high school. And so I shouldn't have been surprised to be in the Purple Feather Club, but every year it happened, it was a surprise or you're so excited about it. So, you know, leaving class, going out on the steps, having the feather, having some donuts and being with other classmates and and celebrating academic achievement and hard work um you know i i appreciate that and that's uh that was a high point of my time at central well natalie thank you for coming on the show today to talk with us uh, i thought this was absolutely fascinating thank you so much and best of luck on your future endeavors Thank you so much, Josh, for having me. And if I, um, as we close out, if I can just encourage, you know, current students and people who've graduated to consider career in foreign affairs. Still, there are not a lot of us from the Midwest working in this space, and there is room for us, and we can make a difference. In fact, uh, there's a small group on Facebook, and I know like people don't use it now, but when you're overseas, still a lot of people will use Facebook. You know, Diplo, Diplobraskans, you know, just about a dozen of us from Nebraska who are in the Foreign Service. And I just think, again, when we talk about representing the United States, it should we should represent all of it. So it's it's been a great career. And I think a lot of the people that um, you interact with overseas, they kind of expect diplomats to come from New York or Washington or Los Angeles, these big cities. And when you're out and about and you can meet someone and say, no, I come from this small town or I come from this agricultural city or I do something that's an opportunity to connect and to remind people that we have shared values and that we all want to live in peace and security and to support our families and, you know, provide for the next generation. And, and I think that's helpful when you have people from you know, north, south, east, and west, and certainly it's a central part of our country um, doing this type of work. Yeah, those are some very powerful closing comments and great advice. Thank you so much. Thank you. Once again, I want to extend a big thank you to today's guest, 1985 alumna Natalie E. Brown. To our listeners, we hope you enjoyed episode eight of Eagle Tales. We would love to hear what you thought about this episode by emailing us at connect at chsfomaha.org or by tweeting us at chsfomaha. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for the Central High School Foundation. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you can be notified of new episodes as they're released. A complete library of the previous episodes can also be found on our website. And once again, that's chsfomaha.org. And remember, near or far, you are always part of the Central High School family. Go Eagles!